Bonjour, my pretentious cinephile audience. It really has been a while, and I'm not exaggerating this time because the previous episode was in fact released over a month ago. A lot has happened over the past four weeks of me not making podcasts. I've gotten into the university course I really wanted to get into, I started and finished a screenplay, and most importantly, I watched a lot of films. And... As you've probably noticed, I decided to rebrand. From here on in, this series that you know and hopefully love will be known as The Film Doctor. Yes, the wonderful world of cinephilia is long gone. I thought it was too much of a mouthful, so out with the old and in with the new. You're now tuning into The Film Doctor. I think it's especially fitting for my podcast because... I analyze these films as if they're my patients. Therefore, I am the film doctor. I have adopted that as my brand and my title. Little backstory as to how I came up with it. Well, it wasn't actually me who came up with it. It was one of my teachers. Because, you know, we're like pretentious cinephile buddies. So I was telling her about how one of my goals in future is to graduate with a doctorate in film at university. And she's like, you're going to be a doctor, a film doctor. And I thought to myself, oh my god, that would have been a great title for my podcast. Anyway, here we are. Without much further ado, thank you for tuning into The Film Doctor. The film we are discussing today is one of my most recent watches, and one of my favorites of all time. That is Agnes Varda's 1962 film Cleo from 5 to 7. This film is so visually stunning, and the symbolism and directorial intentions were clearly so well thought out. I absolutely love the era of French New Wave. It's probably one of my favorite artistic movements in the entirety of history. And since I started the series, I've been trying to have a variety of different genres and eras of film. And I was dead set on doing an episode on a French New Wave film, and here we are. The film is about Cleo, an arrogant pop star. It starts off with her having a tarot reading with a fortune teller. And they warn her that there's an evil force in her life. The cards that are pulled are the hangman and death. Let's stop here for a second. I could tell you what the fortune teller told Cleo in the film upon pulling the cards, but actually... I'm going to talk more in depth about the meaning of these two cards. The first card is the Hanged Man. When this card is pulled, it suggests surrender, sacrifice, or being suspended in time. The latter definitely foreshadows what's to come for Cleo for the rest of the film. This is because throughout the whole film, she's waiting in vain. Hence the title of this episode. This is probably why I don't need to go into too much detail about what this film's plot is about, because it's not too beginning, middle, and end plot-centered. Well, a lot of my favorite films aren't. It's more about the overall concept along with symbolic nuances. A very prominent theme of this film is anticipation. We'll get to this later, because for now, I'm just going to continue talking about the meanings of the tarot cards. 
the second significant card that gets pulled is death. Of course, the title may say it all, but actually it's a lot more than just you're gonna die. In fact, there is so much more to it. One of the most interesting things about this card is that it is the 13th card in the classic tarot deck. And we all know 13 is the unlucky number. The bad luck attached to 13 is probably the most universal numerical superstition. In fact, now that I've mentioned it, superstition is the main theme of this film that we'll be discussing today, because in the entirety of it, it's riddled with superstition. And I don't know if it was intentional by whoever made the classic tarot deck, but it seems really fitting that death is the 13th card. So back to the meaning of the death tarot card. Despite the name, it doesn't represent literal or physical death. It actually implies the end of something. The keywords associated with this card are endings, failures, letting go of attachments, mortality, profound change, and severe illness, which is one of the driving forces of the film and what drives Cleo and causes her anxiety throughout the film. It's the reason why she's waiting in vain. The rest of the film centers around her waiting for the results from her biopsy, so she tries to go on about her day and distract herself. Okay, so as someone who's familiar with how tarot works, there's a thing that I've picked up on in the opening scene that others who aren't as familiar with it might not have picked up on themselves. So if you notice the shot on the cards, when the fortune teller pulls the death card, it's actually in reverse, upside down. And when a card is in reverse, the meaning is different. The death card in reverse represents the following. Delayed endings. Depression. Living unaware. Long terminal illness. And resistance to change. It makes perfect sense because it seems that the entirety of the film is Cleo anticipating the result of her biopsy. Most likely expecting the worst, as you do, because the age-old mind trick is lowering your own expectations so that you'll be less disappointed with the outcome. But don't do this, it's a terribly unhealthy mindset, and yeah, it does work to an extent, but it's not a good thinking habit. Anyway, this foreshadows how Cleo's journey in the time window of her awaiting the test results is going to be quite arduous and on edge. So she tries to kill time. The resistance to change aspect of this card highlights the fact that she's not willing to accept things the way they are. And the idea of negative change unsettles her. This ties into another key theme in this film, and that is morality. To sum it up, morality is the state of being subject to death. Like, everyone is going to die whenever it may be, whatever the cause may be, our lives will come to an end, and like it or not, that's just life. I mean, it's not life, it's death, and it's part of life. Well, it's the end of the life. And it's something that everyone will experience, and we just have to accept the fact that we will. This is something that Cleo refuses to accept, so much that the film follows her going out of her way to look for distractions from the fear that she is dying. 
Revisiting the tarot reading, Cleo's reading suggests that she's dying from a serious illness and that causes her to be paranoid and almost hypochondriac. It's interesting because I believe that one of the foundations of hypochondria is fear of death and unease with the idea of morality because often, if people think they're dying from a said illness, they're not prepared to have their own life taken away from them and, well, subconsciously want to be in denial of it even though they're so adamant that they're dying. Going back to what I said when I was listing what is associated with the death card in reverse. Quote unquote, living unaware. Interpret this how you will, but I think that this is relevant to Cleo's scenario because that's what she tried to subconsciously convince herself. That's why she goes out shopping, goes to a cafe, and falls for this man because she wants a distraction from her anticipation. A symbolic element that I must point out. The shots on the tarot cards are all in color, but on the shots of Cleo and the fortune teller, and then for the rest of the film, everything is black and white. This is very symbolic because it shows how after the reading, it's as if Cleo's world has lost its color and optimism. Clearly, she was quite taken aback and that caused her life to be very drab and existentially dreadful. Existentialism seems to be quite a common theme surfacing in a lot of films I've analyzed in this podcast and will analyze in the future. I went really in depth with this idea in one of my previous episodes. It was the one on After Hours where I talked about how that film portrayed existential dread in a way that makes you think, wow, the world is a cruel place. And I think that's one of the messages of this film as well, because the worldview of the self-absorbed Cleo is flipped. When she leaves the fortune teller, there's a face shot on her and she's trying to console herself and tells herself, as long as I'm beautiful, I'm more alive than the rest. This line alone tells us everything we need to know about Cleo's character and how she's trying to cope with the situation. She's a very self-absorbed, vain character, and she's giving herself these affirmations as she waits in vain. Pun intended. She's inflating her self-perception as a way to deal with mortality. It hit her in the face just like that, and it acted like some sort of wake-up call that mortality is real, you're going to die, so yeah. Vanity is her coping mechanism. To further elaborate on vanity, here's a new word we're going to learn today. Grandiosity. Grandiosity is an inflated self-perception. I do admit, when I was writing my notes for this episode, I was like, what's a good term for someone who has such an inflated view of themselves that's slightly less overused than narcissist? So I googled inflated self-perception, and that was what came up. Actually, this wasn't the first time I've come across the word. A few weeks ago, I was doing a little background research for a film project I'm working on, and it involves someone suffering from delusions, and 
I was researching different types of delusions and one of them was grandiose delusions. These are when someone has an extremely false or unusual belief about themselves. According to numerous medical sites, examples of this are one believing that they're famous, or they're completely above humanity, or they're immortal. The latter is especially relevant because, as I said earlier, Cleo claims that because she's got quite a high profile and she's conventionally attractive, she defies mortality. Because in her own words, she's more alive than everyone else due to her beauty. This means she's got quite a god complex. I've done quite a lot of Shakespeare illusions in this series. That's illusions with an A, not illusions with an I, by the way. And they always seem to work and help me get my point across, so I'm gonna make one. In his tragedy, Othello, the title character appears to have a similar inflated perception of himself because he describes himself as having a perfect soul. And he thinks that he is above most people and closer to God than most. Very similar to Cleo because here, she's trying to convince herself that because she's perfect, she doesn't deserve a life of mortality. If you've read or seen Othello, you've probably picked up on the parallels between Othello and Cleo. Or maybe you've only connected the dots just now because I pointed it out. And in Othello, one of the morals of the story is don't be too full of yourself, don't inflate your own ego, and don't have a god complex and Know your limits as a mortal, otherwise it will all bite you in the back. I'm not saying that karma is real or that in order to have good things happen to you, you've got to be a good person. No, in reality, I personally believe that it's incorrect because often bad things happen to good people while people who are deceitful, manipulative, and abuse their power tend to win at life a lot of the time. So yeah, I don't believe in karma. Anyway, I'm going off topic again, so yeah, even though I don't believe that good things happen to good people and that bad things happen to bad people, well, theoretically, in this context, both Cleo and Othello are prime examples of people whose egos get inflated out of proportion and then experience the repercussions. The writer's decisions to show an egotistical, tragic hero have their egotistical behavior bite them in the back as a wake-up call that, hey, you're not God, you're just a human, is a very clever way to show grandiosity. The parallels between Cleo from 5 to 7 and Othello are absolutely, well, almost identical. Because, as you see, both of them are the typical tragic protagonist, and they, you know, they've got quite inflated egos, but they go through stuff that kind of bursts their bubbles and, you know, kind of kicks them off their high horses and gives them a wake-up call, like, hey, reality check. Now this brings me to the final concept of this film that I want to discuss. Superstition. 
I don't know about you, but even though I claim I'm not a superstitious person, I really am without even realizing. I'm not superstitious to the extent that this film is. Like, I'm not superstitious in the traditional black cats bring bad luck, don't open up an umbrella inside kind of superstitious. It's more like the sense that I'd have these very specific beliefs. Like, for example, I believe that the more I tell people my goals, the less likely I am to achieve them. I guess my kind of superstitions are more psychological. However, the superstitions that are scattered throughout Cleo from 5 to 7 are more necromantic and fanciful than my own ones. After a distraught Cleo meets her maid for coffee, the two of them go shopping. Cleo buys a hat and decides to wear it right after. But as it is Tuesday, her maid insists that she doesn't wear it because it's bad luck to wear something new on a Tuesday. I found this superstition quite odd, so I decided to Google it because I've never heard of it before. And in the search suggestions, it came up with a bunch of really random ones. I'll read some of them out. When you start typing, is it bad to, the first things to come up are, is it bad luck to change the name of a boat? Is it bad luck to open an umbrella inside? Is it bad luck to put a hat on a bed? Is it bad luck to do laundry on a Sunday? Decorate for Christmas early. Wear black to a wedding. Make a toast with an empty glass. I did that once at someone's leaving party and the week after we went into lockdown and they had to come back. Is it bad luck to throw away a Bible? Take a picture of someone in a casket, eh, creepy. Is it bad luck to sleep in front of a mirror? Oh, this is an interesting one. Is it bad luck to say Macbeth in the theater? Okay, this makes sense now because I'm currently doing Macbeth and I remember before the auditions, I was talking to some of my theater friends and I was like, are you guys gonna do Macbeth? And they're like, shh, don't say that. And they did that every time I mentioned it and I was like, what? But now it's only occurred to me that it's a classic theatrical superstition. I'm just reading about it now. So apparently, Macbeth is surrounded by superstition and fear of the curse. Uttering the play's name aloud in the theater causes bad luck. This all makes sense now because I was always talking about the play and I was so confused as to why I was told not to say it, but now it makes sense. Anyway, there's some crazy superstitions out there. I swear anything can be bad luck if you make it bad luck. You know, someday when I've got nothing to do, I want to just type up, is it bad luck to, and then go through all the things that come up in suggestions, because I really want to do some, you know, little side research on this just for fun. You can literally make a superstition out of anything, and people will believe it. They'll lap that up. It's kind of like a placebo effect or Barnum effect or more specifically, horoscopes. In fact, on that note, I will further discuss people's dependencies on those practices and how it is almost parallel to the message being conveyed in this film. 
A superstition that I'm sure almost everyone is familiar with is that it's bad luck to break a mirror. Whether you believe it or not, I'm sure you've definitely heard of it. Somewhere near the end of the film, Cleo accidentally breaks a mirror, and of course, she claims that it's a bad omen. Although these occurrences appear as if they're all fate, the reality is they're just a bunch of coincidences, yet they provoke anxiety in Cleo as she believes that she has bad luck. This is because when we're at our most paranoid, our brain intentionally, yet subconsciously, seeks out the most negative, by default. It's some sort of cognitive bias where we perceive the majority of our occurrences as negative ones or as if they will lead up to or contribute to something bad. I was doing some more background research on the psychology of superstition and what stood out to me was how they are quote-unquote false beliefs that can often produce anxiety and guilt. They can make us feel responsible for bad outcomes we didn't cause, or waste our energy seeking untenable shortcuts to desired outcomes. Reading about how there's a psychological element to it really satisfied me. And I say this because, well, I don't really want to bring in my personal subjective beliefs into it, but I personally believe that the foundation of everything, how humans work, how unexplained phenomena occurs, is psychology. Whenever specific spiritual or scientific beliefs are held, my belief is that there's always a psychological element to justify it. We revolve around psychology. Nothing would make sense without it. So the fact that there is a psychological side to explain why people are slaves to superstition, this ties into my theory in terms of unexplained spiritual beliefs. Specifically, horoscopes and astrology. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that astrology is really interesting, not because I fully believe in it. It's just, it's interesting to me. See, I think that what's truly killing people's ability to think critically and open-mindedly is the fact that I've noticed lots of people think that in order to consume information or find something interesting, you have to agree with it. I personally think that's bullshit and closed-minded. See, I don't agree with Freud, but I find his theories interesting to study and analyze. It's the same with astrology and lots of other spiritual beliefs. I don't fully believe in it, but I find it interesting. So my thoughts on people who are so reliant on astrology and similar practices is, I think that people who are more vulnerable or they feel more unstable with themselves and their lives are more prone to being reliant on it because it gives them hope and security that they're being understood. It provides them with explanations. Linking it back to the film, the fact that Cleo is in a position of uncertainty and insecurity shows that the film's constant superstitious occurrences are all used to justify why bad things happen, particularly Cleo's illness. The final, final thing I'd like to link it to is the cognitive bias known as self-serving bias. 
This is when someone takes credit for the positive outcomes and events in their life, therefore claiming that the good things that happen to them are all a result of their hard work, skill, intelligence, etc. While on the other hand, blaming other factors for negative outcomes and events. For example, Cleo being the epitome of self-obsession possesses this cognitive bias because she is clearly very self-absorbed and would therefore credit herself for the positives in her life while blaming the negatives in her life on bad luck. Hence the broken mirror, her decision to wear new clothes on a Tuesday, the cards that were pulled in the tarot reading, etc. Alright, I think this wraps up today's episode. To summarize everything, we have looked at the correlation between inflated self-perceptions, cognitive biases, reliance on superstition, and the fear of mortality. I'm gonna do this again because I did it at the end of the past two episodes. I've got a couple of assignments for you. The first one. I want you to think of superstitions that you've believed or maybe ones that you still do believe and think of the ways that you've avoided quote-unquote bad luck because of them. The second one. The self-serving bias. Think of examples of when you've been guilty of it. I definitely know that I have been. I'm gonna leave you guys with those two things to think about, and as I've said before, if you do happen to know me relatively well, feel free to share them with me, because I'm always open to discussion about this. I love it. And once again, it's been a lot of fun, but I'm gonna wrap it up, so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Stay pretentious, stay analytical. I will see you in the next episode of The Film Doctor. Yeah, it's The Film Doctor now. We're no longer the wonderful world of cinephilia. It's gone. Film Doctor. And not this coming weekend, but the weekend after, we're going to be discussing... I don't even know what film we're going to be discussing because I haven't planned it, so whatever it is... I hope you guys tune in because it'll be interesting no matter what it is. That's all for me. Au revoir.